Colonial virus is why I can't live. Can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. You gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Uhuru, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today on the People's War Radio Show, we turn our attention to Philadelphia, the city in Pennsylvania that has been credited with sealing an election win for the Democratic presidential candidate Joseph Biden and his vice presidential running mate Kamala Harris. Pundits have gone as far as saying that Philadelphia has saved democracy, and many people were dancing in the streets to celebrate the electoral defeat of Donald J. Trump. Philadelphia has the fourth largest African population in the United States. At 42% of the city's residents, Africans make up the largest single group in Philadelphia, despite the gentrification that has driven many Black families out of the historically Black neighborhoods of West and North Philly. In weeks prior to the U.S. presidential election, the violent anti-Black legacy of Philadelphia was exposed to the world when on October 26, police shot to death a 27-year-old African man, Walter Wallace. Walter suffered from a mental illness and his pregnant wife had called 911 for an ambulance. Instead, armed police were dispatched and killed him. The community responded with several nights of protests and resistance, reparation raids, and skirmishes with the police. On the fourth night of protests, police attacked an SUV driven by a 28-year-old home health aide with her teenage nephew and two-year-old son in the back seat. After shattering the vehicle's windows, the police threw Nakia and her nephew to the ground and snatched the baby out of the car seat. They then took a picture of a white woman cop holding the terrified child and posted it to social media with a caption that claimed the child was rescued by police who found him wandering in the barefoot in the lawless, violent riot. They were forced to take down the post by the lawsuit from the family. This kind of police violence against Africans living in Philadelphia is not new. In today's show, we're going to talk about the recent events, their historical roots, and how to move forward. We're joined by Akimba Bomani Ojure, Jess, Jihad Lassiter, and Lynn Dimmer, direct from Philadelphia. Jihad Lassiter is born and raised in Philadelphia. Falsely accused of a crime by Philadelphia police, Jihad served four years in prison before his case was overturned by forensic investigation. He is still fighting for a complete expungement of his record. Additionally, Jihad survived being shot, first by a random white man and then by a Philadelphia cop. He was paralyzed and now relies on a wheelchair. We are honored to have him with us today. Akimba was born and raised in Philadelphia, where he still resides. Akimba is a professor in liberal studies at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, New York. Jess is a community activist born and raised in Philadelphia. They're an organizer on the ground with the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Lynn Dimmer is a 12-year resident of Philadelphia. They are the chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement in Philly, where they most recently organized a march for reparations to African people and led the Make Wall Street Pay Reparations campaign. 
Uhuru, everyone. Thank you all for being on this episode on the People's War Radio Show. Philadelphia has been in international news for two reasons recently. The most recent, when it was heralded as a beacon of democracy for figuratively deciding the election of Joseph Biden over Donald J. Trump. Just as when Barack Hussein Obama was elected, Democrats and several members of the radical left see this election as some powerful moment of freedom. What are your thoughts on that? Like you spoke about, the election was barely looked at under the radar of Philadelphia, mostly because the uprises that happened recently and the powerful mass uh, people that could affect the election. Unfortunately, the election and the pressure that was put on Philadelphia as far as the election is not going to solve the core issues that are being and has been unfolded in the city of Philadelphia, such as police brutality. Uhuru, uh, what's your thoughts, Akimba? Uhuru, I agree with Jess. You know, going to the question of this symbolizing a powerful moment of freedom, uh, not for African people. The political and economic structure that was in place before Biden became the presidential elect still going to be in place once he uh, assumes office. Um, so for African people, uh, we have to uh, come into a political awareness to understand whether it's the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, uh, whatever party is in power. They don't represent the interests of African people. Um, so it's, it's, it's very important that we begin to look towards a party that represents African people if we really want to uh, achieve power, a movement for power and freedom is going to have to put African people at the center. You know, if we look at even uh, historically, the white population always looked to African people as a way to um, use them as an instrument to put uh, either, the, either the Democrats or the Republicans in power. Um, so it was in their own interest to look to African people to sort of sort of help break the tie or the split between the white uh, majority in this country. That's how African people are looked at in this country uh, when it comes to uh, either the Democrats or Republicans coming into power. We're looked at as someone who can sort of just like break that split, that tie between the two um, uh, opposing parties. All right. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Because uh, Akimba, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. That's the lesson that Malcolm gave us. That's the lesson that Chairman O'Malley Shatella put forward last week is that uh, Africans made up about 25 percent of the Democratic Party's voters. So Africans, each election are the crucial electoral swing vote. But out of our crucial electoral swing vote, we realize that we continually, continually, continually get nothing uh, from it. So I uh, really appreciate all of your comments and your historical analysis. But could I add something really? Um, I just wanted to use the example um, of the Populist Party. Uh, when the Populist, Populist Party came about during the tail end of uh, Reconstruction and, and right after Reconstruction, when uh, Africans, uh, um, the black population in this country was disfranchised, even though they had the right to vote, you know, on the books, uh, according to the 15th Amendment, black men were able to vote. We were disfranchised. It was this resistance against black people exercising their right to vote. But once white Democrats, part of the working class, uh, saw that they that their interests were aligned with African people's interests in this country, 
the Populist Party came about. Uh, and this was a way to break the Republican and the, um, the conservative Democrat hold or control over, over the economic, um, over the wages, over uh, who, over the resources, how much, who is, how is, how is it to be distributed amongst the population? Um, so um, the Populist Party were able to take power from the Republicans um, and the conservative Democrats. Uh, but then it came a point where uh, those same the same white working class uh, no longer saw that they had an interest in empowering or helping empower African people uh, politically and economically. And they decided that even though it was against their own economic interests, that white power came before class. And so they put racism before class. And so it's just an example of just how African people have to make sure that we represent ourselves and make sure that if we have any alignment uh, with any other group of people or any party, that we're coming with a demand, um, that we're coming with power and not begging or, um, you know, looking to others to solve our problems. Like we have to be in control of our own destiny. Just two weeks ago on October 26th, the police department was exposed for two of their officers murdering an African man, 27-year-old Walter Wallace, in the middle of the street. Can y'all tell us what happened? And let's start with you again, Jess. Walter Wallace, a uh, 27-year-old uh, West Philadelphia resident, he was just recently married to his wife, his wife Dominique. He was He's known to have mental issues um, that were being leveled around the time that he was murdered. And when the call for help uh, came, it was for an emergency ambulance um, because uh, our brother was having a crisis. As I've seen being on the ground, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the community has been out in the street calling for um, the accountability of, uh, of these pigs that killed Walter Wallace. It's just been very powerful uh, seeing everybody organize, different organizations come together and organize around the murder of Walter Wallace because it's really pushing the line of black community control of the police and um, building more self-determination in our community so we can have people, again, that look like us, know us, officially policing our areas. Let's go ahead and hear from my Kimba next. I actually lived not too far from where the incident took place and heard about it late, you know, that evening after, um, you know, the, the incident already had passed, hours had passed um, when I had found out. And um, of course, like there, there was a response from the community to this to this murder. And I think the, you know, the community responded in kind um, and we need to have more responses uh, like that. And we have had a lot of responses to uh, police brutality and murder uh, throughout this year. We know of the other names, such as Breonna Teller, George Floyd, but what I want to say is like Walter, Walter Wallace, um, you know, he represents uh, millions, millions of African uh, victims to the to the injustice system, uh, whether, you know, it's at the hands of uh, the police uh, murdering one of our brothers and sisters in the streets or as a brother and sister being incarcerated. There's all types of uh, violence that's taking place, psychic violence, physical violence that's taking place against African people. And Walter Wallace, us seeing that on, on, on tape makes it more evident, makes it more clear we're a colonized people. You know, these are isolated incidents and we shouldn't just respond when a brother is uh, murdered in the streets by the police. But when we see uh, a brother being 
our brother or sister being um, arrested unjustly or being sentenced to jail unjustly. Uh, these are the responses that we need to have um, so they, you know, so that the state will understand that we, we no longer are going to take political oppression or economic exploitation. I've seen countless videos and articles documenting the resistance and overall activity that occurred in Philadelphia. Can you tell us what it was like the days following the shooting of Walter Wallace, Jess or Akimba? Um, the day Walter Wallace was murdered, there was a documentary that um, premiered in Philadelphia. It was labeled 40 Years a Prisoner, a story about uh, Mike Africa struggling to find freedom for the MOVE members. While watching that documentary, it was, a, you know, it just reminded me of how Again, to this day, things don't, you know, didn't change. And seeing the aftermath in the present time, it was, uh, it reminded me of the resistance that was happening um, that came later on after Walter Wallace, the day of, the days after, which was, um, you know, people just really in the streets again, just really uh, resisting. It was just so eye opening. We wanted answers. The community was mad. At this point, you know, it's, it's time to really put our foot down and let these, you know, people that's been exploiting us and, and taking over our economics to, you know, it's time to give it back. And that's why we, you know, we save reparations now. Yeah, I, I agree. Like the atmosphere after the murder of uh, Walter uh, Wallace Jr., a lot of businesses understood what was going to be the response from the community. And uh, they automatically went to just boarding everything up, you know, boarding it up with the wood because they knew that the community was going to respond by burning, breaking um, with the state who's there, with, with the uh, bourgeois who's there, which is their property. And so because they care about property more than they care about the people, uh, the people um, hit them where it hurts at. And that's that's um by destroying property and hurt in their pockets. Uh, this is this caused them to have to have to open their ears and listen to the people uh, to keep this from continuing on. Because the police could do but so much. Because what happens is that it's almost as if it's coordinated where there is a response to a, a gathering of Africans in one location where police forces have to come heavy uh, to try to control uh, groups of Africans in one place. But then you have other places that's in around the city that's exposed. And so it it also highlights or it just exposes how uh, the strength is with, with the masses. Let me ask you this question, Akimba. What some people are calling looting, others call reparations. We saw Walmart, Lowe's, and other stores get cleaned out in the days following the killing of Walter Wallace. Is that a political act? Definitely. That's that's a political act. You know, people think that because a person that's committing that act isn't thinking that they're committing a political act <laughs> that is political. Um, uh, but I, you know, would disagree with that. I think that that's a response to political, um, well, it's a response to the economic conditions uh, that people are in. And so, you know, the, the decision to attack uh, someone economically, that's a political, um, that's a political decision, whether the person is aware of that everything is politics. I mean, you could say it's reparations, but I say we need to go further. But I, I can say that, you know, it's, it's an attack on the economic system. 
in any attack on the economic system um, during a rebellion, during a revolution is is justified in the in the eyes of the oppressed. You know, I don't I, I know there's many people who disagree with with the looting and I'm not on here. I will I will not advocate uh, anyone to to um, to go out and loot. Um, I would not tell anyone not to go out and loot. Um, you know, that's a decision that a person, you know, would have to make. Uh, on their own. But once again, I'll go back to saying that, you know, a decision for groups of people to do that, um, that's a response to the um, political oppression, economic exploitation that's been placed upon them by the state. Lynn, I know you have a lot to say about reparations. What do you think about what Akimba just said? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely a political act. Um, I do agree with Akimba on that. You know, the city government, um, and ruling class media is, you know, indicting and criminalizing these Africans for what they refer to as looting um, and rioting. But, you know, that there is another word that would be more appropriate to describe what's happening in Philly, um, and that would be reparations. You know, Philadelphia isn't innocent. These large corporations uh, who were looted, quote unquote, you know, aren't innocent. Um, after the murder of George Floyd, you know, Walmart stated that they would be giving $100 million to uh, like a racial equality organization. You know, and claims like these are totally empty and just like meaningless, um, you know, just just a way to hop on the, the Black Lives Matter train and to, to be like let off the hook. You know, but as a uh, as comrade uh, Jesse Neville pointed out to me at one point, you know, Walmart up until recently even kept their, you know, multicultural hair and uh, hair care and beauty products like in locked cases. You know, and so it's like, what does that even tell you about the stance of Walmart in general? Um, you know, dropping a snippet of the Walton family's net worth into some anti-racist organization is, isn't going to stop the murder of African people, uh, you know, or change the housing crisis for African people. You know, the Office of Home Services uh, recent report looked at data from uh, July 1st, 2018 to June 30th in 2019. Uh, and found that Black Philadelphians represented 79% of people served in housing crisis um, and assistance programs in 2019, but they only made up 44% of the city's overall population. You know, so Walmart and other large corporations' pocket change just isn't, isn't going to fix this reality. Um, you know, everything was stolen from Africans, including themselves as people, um, to build up the society that we have today um, and this this city. So nothing can really be looted. Um, you know, Africans can't loot things that that righteously already belong to them. So that's yeah, that's my that's my stance on on this so-called rioting and looting. Uh, they are they are reparations for sure. Uhuru. Thanks for that, Lynn. You're white, and you were out there protesting against the police killing of Walter Wallace. We saw you on USA Today holding up a sign that read. Reparations for the murder of Walter Wallace. Why were you out there? You know, as a white person, um, I understand that I'm I'm the colonizer. You know, I'm aware of the fact that I'm here today in you know in the city in this world, um, you know, because of the stolen labor and resources of African people. And you know, I'm here today because of the continual and, and accepted violence against African people. Um, you know, living in Philly for 12 years, I, I've really grown to understand the city and its its deep roots in history. And, you know, of course, there's a deep history of violence uh, against the African community, you know, but there's also a history of, of everyday white civilians, just like myself, you know, being violent towards African people, you know, and police have a violent history with the, with protesters. It's like any time, you know, in the past that Africans organized, um, even during like, you know, World War One, you know, police responded with murder. And, you know, when right res residents like attacked Philly, uh, attacked Africans in Philly, 
um, you know, the police just turned the other way. And, you know, here we are today, you know, 35 years later, after the neighborhood in West Philly, where the move house was, you know, was completely destroyed. Um, you know, 35 years later, the same neighborhood is is just being ravaged again by by the murder of another African man by two, you know, white colonial police officers. So I mean, that's why I was out there. This this whole uh, this this whole city was you know was built on on like this on a history of violence, you know. And so as a member of you know Uhuru Solidarity Movement, we're out there going into the white community to raise reparations, you know. And it shouldn't be up to you know any other companies to define what reparations is. It's 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 the African led resistance that decides you know what is needed, you know. And the African liberation struggle the Black Power Blueprint is like a really prime example, you know, of where reparations should go. Um, That's part of the reason why I was out there. What we white people have to do to be in solidarity with the African resistance isn't just sitting on the sidelines with Black Lives Matter signs or, uh, you know, making posts on social media or holding like anti-racist posts and stuff. Um, You know, we have to join the Uhura Solidarity Movement, you know, and join the resistance on the front lines, you know, and the way that we do that is like to call out big corporations like Walmart and Target and big banks like Bank of America and JP Morgan, you know, like we did during the March of Reparations, Philly a few weeks ago, you know, we, we really need to make this the white ruling class pay the reparations that they owe. You know, one of those demands that we had at the March was was for making Wall Street pay these reparations, and also for the city of Philadelphia to pay reparations to the African community for the bombing of MOVE and for, you know, all this neglected homelessness that are mostly African and you know the conditions of this poor working class um, in Philly, and and of course for like these the, these continuous police murders of you know and the African community just being thrown into the colonial prison system. Jihad, I understand you had some devastating experience with the Philadelphia police. Can you tell us about what occurred and how that helped shape your views of the police? Uru, um, yes, in '06, um, I I was. I had a block party. I had a conversation with the cop. And then that's why I went to the end of the block and asked the gentleman which way the, the guy went on the bike that I was chasing. And that's when he pulled out a gun and shot me. And when the cops heard the gunshots, um, the person I had a conversation with, he started shooting me as well because he was assuming that was me shooting at him for us having a confrontation at the end of the block. Um, and when he shot me, he ordered me. He said, if you move, you can blow my effing head off. And I gave him the middle finger. And he shot me again anyway. They gave me bad PTSD because now I can't trust them for nothing or called on them for any help. They also had sentenced me. They gave me life in jail, actually. They gave me three separate long charges. And um, I want to overturn everything. I did four years of the life. Forensic proved my innocence, so they gave me four years of the life. When they looked over my uh, transcripts, they saw forensics prove that I had no gunpowder on me. So how was I able to do any of the shooting that they said I was doing? At the end of the day, you can see it was just all corrupt and they just try to cover themselves. I don't think they are there for people of my color for help or for nothing, for anything. Since I've been growing up, I've been incarcerated at the age of 10 to 17 because I was wrongfully convicted for something else that they gave me and forensic proved my innocent. But we ain't talking about that. But at the end of the day, I just, it gave me bad PTSD. You know what I'm saying? And um, so I've been serving like a lot of time incarcerated for like, for stuff that I honestly <laughs> didn't do. So political, I just don't trust them. I don't trust them. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show. 
produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Ikemba Bomani Orjere, Jess Jihad Lassiter, and Lynn Dimmer, direct from Philadelphia. Philly is internationally famous for its notorious anti-African police terrorism. Rizzo's attack on the Panthers, the attacks on the Moo family, even going back to the early 20th century mass killings of African people. Ikemba or Jess, can you give us a brief history of state violence against African people in the Philly area? When you're talking about uh, America and, and state violence, uh, we, can, we can go back to the founding of this country, state violence against African people and enslavement of the first Africans that were brought here in 1619. Um, so, you know, this contradiction that, you know, existed since the very beginning, you know, in particular, Philadelphia has always been like a center of resistance against against um, state violence or, um, you know, just oppression uh, and exploitation of, of African people and their labor. Uh, Philadelphia has been at the center of the Black Liberation Movement, you know, all going all the way back to even, um, you know, the late 1700s, uh, early 19th century. By 1810, uh, during that decade, there were there were 10 churches, 10 churches alone of, of different denominations with the name African in its name, uh, just to show that these people had a high level of consciousness of who they were uh, being African people. But, you know, even if you talk about the Underground Railroad, Philadelphia was this, was, was the center um, of the Underground Railroad. Um, the origins itself of the Underground Railroad being in Columbia, PA, uh, and later, you know, we'll find of find his way to Philadelphia being the center of the abolitionist movement. Key abolitionist figures were in Philadelphia. Harriet Tubman herself uh, spent time in Philadelphia um, and uh, passing through Philadelphia also as a stop. Africans uh, enslaved would make their way up to uh, the North and then to Canada. Uh, by the 1830s, you know, you would have Philadelphia as a center and also um, a center of the abolitionist movement, but also you had the first um, African um, or, or African-American convention uh, taking place uh, here in Philadelphia at the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, naming Richard Island as the president. And so, um, you know, by 1860, you had more than 9,000 9, runaways enter, um, Africans running away from the enslavement entering Philadelphia. Um, that's on the eve of the Civil War. So it just goes to show just like this history of um, of resistance that uh, existed in Africa. Even, um, you know, the great Don Brown, you know, spent about 10 years in Philadelphia um, as a part of this abolitionist movement. And, um, you know, even going back to Harriet Tubman, and her her role, you know, even in the uh, fight, this, this is just in general, um, the, the fight against the uh, enslavement of African people, uh, John Brown would call uh, Harriet Tubman, Gen General Tubman, uh, because of her role in trying to organize Africans to uh, to be a part of this uh, rebellion against slavery. Um, so even, you know, after, after the Civil War and the abolishment of slavery, uh, you had this era of Reconstruction, um, and you had uh, a brother by the name of Octavius Cato, um, who came out of Charleston, South Carolina, who moved to Philadelphia prior to the Civil War, who was shot shot and murdered on, a, on election day for trying to exercise his rights. 
his right to vote. You know, night this was in 1871. Um, 1870, you had the the ratification of the 15th Amendment, which gave African men the right to vote. But there was this resistance, not just in, in the South, but also in the North. Um, so right here in Philadelphia, um, and and we have a statue of, of Octavius Cato here in Philadelphia um, to uh, symbolize uh, his resistance during the civil rights movement uh, during that period of time. And so, you know, this resistance came from ethnic Irish um, of the Democratic Party. Um, so people here in Philadelphia is just opposing Black people's rights, uh, Black people uh, to freely exercise their right as, quote unquote, American citizens. Uh, so, you know, racism fueled uh, racial conflict in Philadelphia also uh, during um, the period of uh, during the period of World War One, uh, where you had uh, racial conflicts existing all across the United States. In Philadelphia, in Philadelphia, it was no different. Um, so between 1917 and 1919, you had a series of um, uh, racial conflicts uh, over industrial jobs, um, Africans moving into white neighborhoods. Um, so everything that you hear about happening in the South, it was also happening in the North, segregation, uh, political oppression. Um, so racial segregation, all of these things that were going on. This also uh, gave way, these contradictions um, also gave way to the African people taking on the philosophies of uh, Marcus Garvey, philosophy of um, uh, African uh, internationalism, even though it wasn't called African internationalism, um, but uh, seeing African people all over the world as connected and in, in, um, organizing African people uh, in the United States in the Caribbean and Africa uh, uh, with the hopes of, of organizing them to create an uh, African state, you know, to move up to the 1960s. Just to say UNIA, by the 1930s, uh, the UNIA in Philadelphia was only second to Chicago as far as the number of members, with over 6,000 UNIA members here in Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, there's this history of, um, of, of resistance, of of um, organizing for black power and the fight for civil rights or black power uh, that was very strong in Philadelphia. Um, in 1963, you had Cecil B. Moore, uh, which we have a street named after him now, who's the president of the NAACP. He took took the NAACP from being um, uh, fighting uh, non-direct um, action against the state to being, being more confrontational, organizing uh, people to hit the streets, um, strikes, uh, just resisting uh, the apparatus, uh, fighting for more job opportunities and so forth for African people. Uh, that was Cecil B. Moore. Um, and in 1964, you would see another race riot because of racial tensions being high over issues of police brutality. Um, so this is in 1964. This is no different that, than what we see today, these issues of police brutality. So it just shows that this is a contradiction that's inherent in the system of colonialism. I don't know if, Jess, you wanted to add anything uh, to what I'm saying, you know, because um, then you have moves later on and so forth. But well, I don't know if I, Jess I really wanted to add something. Uh, that history that you just laid out, um, that deep history of uh, Philadelphia. Yeah, Uhuru. I appreciate that deep history as well. Uh, the thing that really stands out to me about Philadelphia is the fact that 
lot of people talk about the abolitionist movement as if the abolitionist movement was pacifist, but there was this group called the Vigilance Committee led by William Steele out of Philadelphia. That's the organization that Harriet Tubman joined, and that's the organization that started the Underground Railroad. They organized mutual aid as well as uh, community self-defense for the African community, pledging their lives in defense of Africans who had fled slavery. So I think that history of community self-defense, armed self-defense, that goes all the way back to the vigilance committees, as well as, like you said, the dozens of organizations in which African was in their name, not African-American, not Negro, not colored, and things like that. And you take that up to the revolutionary action movement, which was very important in moving away from very reactionary forms of Black nationalism to what they had termed Black internationalism to the Black Panther Party and Mumia Abu-Jamal, I really think that you, Akemba, and Jess, and everyone else really underscore uh, the importance of looking at Philadelphia as a place of African independence politics, uh, African self-determination, African community self-defense. Uhura Lynn, previously Akimba was talking about the history of violence that African people have endured in Philadelphia. And I know that you all led the March for Reparations as well as the Make Wall Street Pay Reparations campaign, where you clearly identified the history of violence against African and indigenous people that Philadelphia was built upon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so so for the march of for the march for reparations to African people in October, um, you know, we started out um, with a rally at the Liberty Bell, you know, back down in Society Hill, it's called, you know, and this is this is where the first White House was, and you know, the the Constitution which was created here, you know, by white men was signed there, you know, and those white men believed that black that black people had no rights, which the white man was bound to respect. Um, you know, so the first presidents, the first president, you know, George Washington owned enslaved Africans and, and those Africans were the ones who actually, who built this city that I am, you know, safely living in for over a decade. You know, as, as a white person, it's just like, I recognize that my existence is based off of the backs of African people um, and it continues to do so. This, the history of, of uh, violence towards African people is just so, uh, so deep, you know, even back in you know, like the 40s, there were, you know, there were uh, in, in Southwest Philly, which is not too far from where I live today, you know, um, there were white youth who were constantly like attacking black youth, um, like in schools and stuff, and just like in the street. And, you know, the police took the sides of the, of the white kids and, you know, arrested the black youth en masse to just start um, that, that process, that colonial uh, oppressive process of um, incarcerating uh, young Africans, at, you know, at such a young age is just shows, uh, you know, where our society stands, you know, especially in, in Philadelphia, you know, and then here we are in the 80s, you know, with the move bombing, and then 35 years later, you know, the same neighborhood being being attacked again, it's just, it's consistent. And the, you know, this violence we need to be out there and, um, you know, as USM, as, as being a white person standing in solidarity with the African resistance, you know, I feel like it's my job to be out there to show people that, hey, did you know that your bank was founded on the trading of enslaved Africans? You know, like a lot of people don't know that, you know, that their bank made money from 
collateral of enslaved Africans. And so that's, that's why, that's why we're out there. And, you know, that, that's the history and that's the reality. And we, we're just trying to show everybody what it is and, and how it needs to change. Like now, that's why we're out there. We're doing what the, you know, the African People's Socialist Party has asked us to do. And, you know, our job is to do is to fulfill that in any way that we, you know, in any way that we can. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Akimba Bomani Ojure, Jess, Jahat Lassiter, and Lynn Dimmer, direct from Philadelphia. Jess, today some people are celebrating the election of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris as a victory for African people. To understand that, we have to remember Philadelphia's black mayor, Wilson Good, dropped a bomb, military-grade C4, on the move house and burnt down an entire neighborhood in 1985. In response, the African People's Socialist Party sent their best organizer, Omawali K. Fing, into Philly to open people's eyes against the prevailing sentiment that, quote, we can't criticize Wilson Good." He's our first black mayor, unquote, and proceeded to organize a reparations tribunal, putting Good and the city of Philadelphia on trial. They called Good a neo-colonialist. Uh, what does that mean to you? It neo-colonialism uh, really affects us uh, greatly today. Um, it 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 aligns with the colonizers' agenda, where we see people like us take up a role. Or position that we feel like is uh, maybe heroic because we never seen anyone else in that position that looked like us, and uh, unfortunately that doesn't change the conditions, the the material basis of uh, our issues, as we can see, and that replays in history. Just as you mentioned, Wilson Good, um, who carried out an order to drop a bomb on the Move organization, which was a follow up from the previous mayor who who was Rizzo, who was not Black, but also they carried out the same line of work for the state. And the history of, of both of these mayors um, doesn't, you know, sit well with me. Um, but Rizzo started off as a police commissioner and went into later as the mayor of Philadelphia. And today we have, in Philadelphia, we see something as we may see around the world, a uh, quote unquote, a black woman in a position um, that we never seen before, Kamala Harris being uh, projected to be a vice president. And here in Philadelphia, we have a black commissioner, a woman named Danielle Outlaw. Uh, her name is funny, the, the outlaw part especially. But it just literally shows that the system is the same throughout history. It plays the same role and it carries out the same thing that it's been doing and that's um keeping the masses in a in a um in a position where they think and feel like they need politics or this someone or have a label will will somehow save us but that's that's not been working and um again like we see today with our new commissioner danielle outlaw who has in my opinion i don't know if things got worse or um stagnant but there's a lot of issues that um, the community have with, uh, of course, that's the police departments around around the world. I was going to say the country, but literally around the world, um, we see um, Africans and uh, 
people really resisting the neo-colonial powers um, that has taken over our communities. In the media, it says that there were 52 officers injured, one in critical condition from being ran over, and at least one squad car was burned. This uprising in Philadelphia happens just weeks after the city of Kenosha erupted when the police murdered Jacob Blake, and the same in Louisville, Kentucky, when it was announced that no charges will be filed for the murder of Breonna Taylor. What are your thoughts on the police shootings? And why is it important to not isolate each incident or just say it was one bad apple? Akimba, let's start with you. It goes back to uh, the point that I was making earlier when I talked about how Walter, Wa- Walter Wallace Jr. is one of millions of African victims of colonialism. And so all of these shootings that are taking place in different different cities um, across the United States of America, uh, these uh, brothers and sisters, uh, these Africans, they don't represent isolated incidents. The ultimate price that they're paying is death, but there are countless acts of violence against African people that go unheard of, that, that are not recorded every day. Uh, these acts of violence are taking place as a result of, st- of state violence. And so, you know, these are isolated incidents because the system itself is the problem. We are under colonial conditions. And under colonialism, there is no, you know, good colonizer or bad colonizer or agents of the state. There are no good agents of the state. They're all, you know, they're all, um, I think I previously said no good or bad. But they're all bad because they're serving the state. They're serving um, the state's interests. African people as colonized people uh, have to be aware of this contradiction going back to uh, the organization um, in the 60s, Revolutionary Action Movement, uh, RAM, who was based out of about 1964, their um, headquarters was based out of Philadelphia, who also talked about uh, African people uh, being part of an eternal uh, colony. And it goes back to the previous question we talked about neocolonialism. We have to understand that African people are colonized. And so, there, you know, there's this contradiction that exists between African people in a white power structure that needs to be solved, and it only can be solved through uh, revolution. And until that happens, we're going to continue to see uh, acts of police brutality against African people because it's in their interest to keep African people oppressed. We're the backbone of this economy, of this state. You know, yeah, there's no isolated incidents. You know, this is this is what the state does. Right, right. I appreciate that. So it was reported by police commissioner Daniel Outlaw and the attorney for Walter Wallace's family, Shaka Sabaz, that the officers did not have tasers and the only weapons that they had were guns. In the call for black community control of police, the community would have complete control over the deployment and the response of officers. What would we see happening different if the black community had complete control over the police and why would it be different? One of the biggest issues I see is that there's outside entities that come into our community that again have no idea who we are, have no sense of our culture and um, really don't care. We need people who care, people who um, you know want to resolve the issue at hand. Like I said before, I would have never uh, thought about pulling my gun on um, Walter Wallace Jr. I, I would have saw his mental state and um, 
digested it from there. Um, and, 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 you know, as, as it was labeled a mental crisis where we can have people who are able to uh, take care of issues in, in the manner that it should, that the again, the relationship will become healthier and there will be uh, real material changes in our neighborhoods. Yeah, I think the response would be different. The relationship between uh, those who are representing the security or defense of our community, uh, we can begin to start pushing people from the community to go through those trainings, uh, go through the proper training to become um, security security uh, forces for the community. So we can uh, begin to have people that are actually from those communities. Um, as long as we have people from outside of the community uh, uh, defending our community, we're never really protected. Oh, Lynn, I think there was something you wanted to say about Black community control of the police. As a white person and as, as um, a member of USM, you know, we really, really stand behind Black community control of the police. Um, and that's another reason why I was out there as well. You know, uh, I was surrounded by people holding up, um, you know, defund the police signs. And that's not a real solution. You know, the real solution is uh, supporting Black community control of the police. You know, murders like like Walter Wallace won't stop unless this demand is met in Philly um, and everywhere, really. You know, it's the, the, the community should have the right to hire and fire and train and discipline, you know, and even like redefine what policing looks like in their own communities. And nobody else should be able to do that for them. So it's just, you know, really important that, I, that you know, I felt like to be out there with a sign that just was a completely different and actual tangible solution as opposed to, you know, just defunding police. Philadelphia has a long history of struggling for economic self-reliance and prosperity for the African community. Philly had the Divine Lorraine Hotel on North Broad Street, black schools and colleges, and many businesses for Africans by Africans, going all the way back to the Free African Society, a mutual aid society in the 18th century. Today in Philadelphia, we have African-owned bookstores, including Black and Noble Bookstore and Uncle Bobby's over in Germantown both of which have come under attack by white nationalist brick throwers. We have independent African schools, restaurants, and clothing stores. In the Uhuru movement, we have the Uhuru Furniture Store on North Broad Street and the One Africa, One Nation Marketplace, operated by the African People's Education and Defense Fund, of which Black Power 96.3, the radio station, Producing this program is also a project. The One Africa, One Nation African Marketplace has served as a primary income for its vendors as an incubator for budding African-owned businesses. What is the role and significance of independent economic development in building a future of peace and prosperity for the African community? It's very important that African people uh, control their own economy. That's the basis of our living, to be able to control the means of production, to be able to control, you know, the food that we grow, uh, what we eat, to, you know, be able to sustain our life. You know, if, if another people is controlling your economics, they have control over your life. They can determine your life. And so, you know, with small businesses, as a start, have our own marketplaces, I think it's, uh, it symbolizes that African people can, can do for self. And it can inspire, uh, you know, our people to want to shop with other Africans, to want to um, create their own 
businesses and so forth and uh, to be less reliant on the colonizer or the oppressor. Doing these things on a small scale, yeah, organizations like the, um, you know, the Uhuru movement with the uh, uh, Buy Black Power campaign or the uh, Black Power um, blueprint taking over uh, whole communities, um, African people taking over whole communities and, and um, developing businesses and, and controlling real estate um, is very key. You know, to be a self-determined people, uh, you have to be able to control your economy. You know, it's very important. This is is key to being a, a liberated people, to being a self-determined people. You know, I think that that you know the role significance of um, of an African-controlled economy is very key. I greatly unite with uh, Akimba. It's an expression of self-determination, and it brings us closer to the, the Black power that we talk about, that we struggle for um, having, especially economic power, uh, being able to control our, again, our means of production, what's what we're eating, what's in our grocery stores, um, whose businesses are, are in our communities. And um, that, you know, they're not just their uh, benefit from from us, but that we benefit from them as well. Um, so that's very important that we we struggle to build a uh, economic power. You're listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Akimba Bomani Orgere, Jess Jihad Lassiter, and Lynn Dimmer, direct from Philadelphia. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on Black Power Talks podcast on WUBP. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. And we'd like to thank our guests, Akimbo Bomani Orjere, Jess Jihad Lassiter, and Lynn Dimmer for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. Plague in the spread. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Down with the colonial Is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial. Down with 
colonial virus is why I'm poor. The colonial virus keeps me at war. The colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. So we say down with the colonial virus. 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 COVID-19, that's colonial virus. Ebola disease, that's colonial virus. HIV, that's colonial virus. Jovenel Moyes, that's colonial virus. Domestic violence, that's colonial virus. Sexual violence, that's colonial virus. Horizontal violence, that's colonial virus. Violence, that's colonial virus. Gentrification, that's colonial virus. Mass incarceration, that's colonial virus. Deportation, that's colonial virus. The need for constant inebriation, y'all, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black women, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black men, that's colonial virus. Attacks on black children, that's colonial virus. We can't take no more of this colonial virus. We say down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the 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 down with the